Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to today's episode. The past two years has been a roller coaster for people working and learning as we traditionally knew. While e-learning has been on the rise since early 2000s, the pandemic was the fuel it needed to proliferate and become an essential part of education both in academia and the corporate world. Delivering education through this medium is a challenge to begin with. Delivering it to foreign students is even more complex. To talk about e-learning localization and what to expect in this area in 2022, I have invited Kristen Gutierrez to share her thoughts and experiences with us today. Kristen Gutierrez is an accomplished localization industry leader. She is vice president of sales at United Language Group or ULG, where she helps clients improve the net business outcomes of globalization efforts. For the past 16 years, she has worked for companies including the former SDL, which is now RWS, Lionbridge and Translations.com. Kristen also worked at NetApp, supporting the globalization and content strategy team. While at NetApp, she led the communications strategy that supports their executive communications all the way to CEO staff, including innovation programs, key deliverables, and industry presence. Additionally, for the past few years, Kristen has held various leadership and support roles within Women and Localization. Currently, she is program director of Women and Localization's media channel and host of Ask the Expert YouTube series. In 2021, she co-founded Toddlers Plus Translation. Kristen resides in Long Beach, California with her husband and two small kiddos, Gibson, who's three, and Jack, one-year-old. Welcome to the Translation Company Talk, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So nice to meet you and see you here. I'm so happy that you made it. Please tell us a few words about yourself and what you do these days. Right. So I am a vice president of sales for United Language Group. I've been in the language services industry for almost 17 years. Honestly, I stumbled into it because I was working retail right out of college and I just desperately needed a job. <laughs> so um, I ended up at SDL as inside sales and my career literally just took an amazing path ever since then. I've met obviously incredible people along the way. I've had some of the best mentors in the industry and I've also done a stint on the client side working at NetApp inside their globalization department. So I always say I don't just talk the talk, now I walk the walk. Wow. So uh, I'm interested to learn more about how you started up in this industry. You mentioned that you stumbled. Was it by chance, by design, or when you found it, did it really caught you by surprise? <laughs> so the truth is, because I um, do this series for women in localization, Ask the Expert, right. right? A lot of people, and I'd be interested in what your path is too, but like people went to Monterey Institute, people studied linguistics, People had a huge passion for language and culture. I needed a job, right? Right, I blasted my resume everywhere. Back then it was careerbuilder.com. I responded to all ads. I proactively like sought out, you know, jobs, et cetera. And SDL came knocking. They were in the middle of their Tronos acquisition. So like 2005 is a long time ago. And I'll never forget because I started talking to them whenever. And then I eventually threw the paperwork out because the thing (laughs) stalled. They finally hired me in August and they had told me we're so sorry for the delay. Like we were going through this very large acquisition. So I fell in love with the people 
at very young age, because SDL is headquartered in the UK, I got to travel internationally. And then I got promoted at SDL to manage manage all of inside sales. So I was traveling like every quarter to the UK. And so to be 25, that's pretty um, fun to, you know, if my parents are like, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> So that's the honest truth. Wow. So I, I always ask uh, the guests on the show to share their story and what they've observed that has changed at the macro level in the industry since they started. What are your observations? Machine translation. I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind. When I, you know, at the beginning of my career, we would say, yes, machine translation can work for slow manufacturing companies with like heavy tech doc requirements and like where things are almost like robotically written. But now, of course, we're seeing MT in learning and we're seeing MT in marketing and we're seeing live chat. We're seeing the use cases of MT literally explode. So I think that for me is the biggest evolution I've identified. So it's the technology basically that, that for you stood out. First, yes, the technology. Uh, Kristen, today we will be putting the topic of e-learning localization trends for 2022 under the microscope. It is a form of education that is new, but also very innovative. For people in our industry not familiar with e-learning, please share some background. Uh, what do they need to know? Sure. So. Um from my perspective, e-learning covers a wide variety of things, right? It could be focused um, on the educational schools, right? So, I mean, especially in the times of COVID, where all a lot of students were remote learning, there's an e-learning component of that. The clients I focused on my entire career has been like a corporate enterprise type fashion, um, where you're talking about tech companies or manufacturing companies. I mean, not even life sciences, but also life sciences, right? Where corporations are training both employees and also end users of their product how to. So there could be a compliance or ethics training course. There could be a manual of like onboarding. There could be um, training around HR, et cetera. Or there, you could be a company who sells your products to the global market and you need to train consumers how to use that product. That's where my expertise li lies in the second half. So where are things today? Give me a picture of where e-learning localization stands today. Oh, yeah. What drove this segment of education to become sizable? It, um, really, it was already a growing area for companies, but the pandemic has just full throttled e-learning forward. Um, I think you're seeing that in terms of the amount of content that companies are trying to communicate has just grown 100x. Right. And so the idea for needing e-learning within a company um, and you have global employees and now everyone's working from home. So if you're focused on e-learning as it relates to employees, I think the pandemic has just shifted everything. There are trends out there and statistics that say this space has grown 10x already from you know five years ago and it's only going to grow so much larger at this point moving forward like everything is going online you used to have a lot of instructor-led training courses right. i think you're, now you're just doing some more blended learning and uh, so let's let's try to zoom in on the type of e-learning requiring localization uh, we have elementary education today most of our kids had to get introduced and adapt to this form of education over the past year and a half then you have university courses and then there is corporate training which you just mentioned uh, to deliver e in in e-learning fashion how is localization different for each of these different subsectors great question um can you answer the first two 
<laughs> my kids probably can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So localization for the corporate enterprise space um, is very specific to like what are the intended outcomes of the course? And then what is the tolerance for getting everything exactly right versus being able to introduce technologies like machine translation or voice AI to maybe sh help shrink budgets or get content out faster. I don't know if in the elementary or higher education space, like I really cannot speak to that. It'd be a really interesting topic for you on a podcast to do like a 2.0 version of this to bring us me in um, to talk about that. In fact, my kids are three and one. <laughs> so <laughs> luckily, they are in daycare like they don't i don't know <laughs> so on that topic do you think that the pandemic and all these lockdowns they helped localization grow given the fact that now people had more accessibility in terms of education remotely yes yeah i personally believe and i've seen it with my clients and my colleagues clients just an enormous shift to localizing everything under the sun that typically companies weren't maybe localizing. You might have a big company with headquarters in one particular location and all employees are reporting to the office and everybody's kind of checking in and they still, they might have big pods of offices like that around the world. The pandemic required everybody to start working from home. And so IT departments and HR departments were scrambling to all of a sudden translate user guides and um, policies around, you know, certain functional areas. So I think from that in and of itself, but I think combined with the e-learning, now you're onboarding, you, let's say you have this historic brick and mortar company headquarters, and you're onboarding your employees in person. But what does that actually look like in the advent of a pandemic? You're still hiring an insane amount of people but you're not able to train them necessarily in person. Um, so that's the introduction then of just typical e-learning was always a growing sector, but now the pandemic has just shifted everything to say, you know, if you're a global organization and you have global employees or you're selling products globally, you're missing out on a huge market share if you're not translating or localizing training, creating training and translating it. How does e-learning localization stack up in terms of effort and amount of work that needs to be done compared to traditional areas of localization like technical, healthcare, or software localization? That's a really good question. I think depending on who you are as a client and really what you're requiring, the certain things that you mentioned, I mean, everything requires a SME. Everything requires a vendor to say, okay, you've got marketing content or learning content. I'm going to set up separate you know, translators to do that particular content. We're testing and vetting translators, right, to be subject matter experts in this. But e-learning as a whole, it, it, it does require a very specific level of expertise. You've got file formats that aren't doc, doc files or PowerPoint files necessarily, right? Like you're using particular software like Storyline or Articulate to actually create. So you need a translation partner who truly understands what the back end of those tools look like, what the export of those tools are, and then really how to do testing around the completed course to ensure that everything has compiled and is user friendly and user ready. So I do think that with any software localization or learning localization, there is there is an extra layer of scrutiny that the language services provider needs to look at in relating to 
making sure that the course, you know, the output of the course is absolutely intended. It's not as easy as taking a doc and translating it and sending the doc back. Oh, and formatting the doc. I mean, you have to match up the voices and the talking and depending on the complexity. So let's say this, depending on the complexity of what the learn, what the course is, how many voices they're using, are there how many female voices, how many male voices, are they actual humans doing the talking or are they animations doing the talking? The voiceover component of learning in and of itself requires a very specific specialization. Not only that, but testing the translations in their completed software environment once the learning has been compiled also requires a specific know-how. So I think that learning localization absolutely requires a very, you know, trained eye. For those of us not familiar with the process, let's break down how and what are the pieces of e-learning uh, courses that, that actually get localized. How is the end-to-end -end process different from a standard software localization project? For example, in a document localization, if it's a manual, we obviously extract the text, we translate it, we test it, and then we send it back to the client that has to meet the requirements. With software, it's a different process. Obviously, we have to get the software strings and, and localize it uh, according to the industry uh, and so forth. With e-learning, how would you structure the, the project around localizing it? That is a great question. So you're right. With documents, it's very straightforward, even if there includes graphics, etc. With learning, we particularly have 30 various steps on our workflow that go into all of the processes for learning. So you've got just from setting up the project, there's an extra step or two. After localizing, there's a couple extra steps. Um, and that's, of course, including any glossaries, you know, that are inherent to a standard best practice. But then you've got to like software localization, since you mentioned it, you've got various testing components that are compiled back into the learning, but you also have the added layer of voice. So the right. question is, are you using human voice or AI voice? And no matter what the answer is, there's various steps along the process to compile the voice and the entire course with the translations back. You really want to make sure that you're um, working with an engineer on the background. With United Language Group, as an example, we have very specific training engineers and subject matter experts specific to just doing learning. So anytime we're translating a document, there might be one project manager and then a various bunch of people behind the scenes interfacing, but one project manager interfacing with the client. For a learning program, you might have two or three or four people actually interfacing with the client at various steps of the process, just because of the intricacy and the nature of, and the complexity of um, the learning program. So it, now that introduces a bit of a challenge for people who are on the business development side of things. How do you price things out and justify it to clients? Because for clients at the end of the day, they may not realize that it's not just a simple translation of words that that's involved here. Yeah, I was just on a client this morning uh, call actually <laughs> talking about learning and I thought about this podcast and preparation for it. Um, and they've gotten a quote from another vendor. And right now their training is simple PowerPoints. And that's the thing. Training doesn't have to be some big complex program, right? In their case, it is PowerPoint and it is words on a screen like you would translate any documents, right? But as we're talking about their scope moving into 2023, to 2023, they're planning through 2025, we suggest the introduction of machine translation and voice AI because a client who's never translated externally, he they tell us they've used internal subject matters or 
course, like there was instructor led training. So they used internal instructors to do the translations in region. And this is for like 10 plus languages, but they realized that that's not scalable and they need to take a step back holistically. So from a business development perspective, we really have to, without overwhelming the client on, oh, but don't forget about voiceover in the future and don't <laughs> forget about this. We have to educate them around like, let's, let's take a step back and say, okay, learning with voiceover and all the bells and whistles, it could add a significant cost to your bottom line. And if this is internal training, training that you're not getting um, compensated on in the background, like the more training you sell, if you're not selling your training or the more people that watch your training, maybe the more they're using your product and adapting. So they're like lifelong customers. If this is simply internal training, it often is a cost. So let's look strategically at ways to minimize your cost by introducing efficiencies in the process itself or through technologies on the back end, right? We, the best thing about partnering with ULG is we don't have a one size fits all. So one of my learning clients who spends just about three quarters of a million dollars a year, we have their training program segmented so that certain languages use 100% human and 100% voiceover talent, whereas other languages use 100% machine and 100% voice AI. And then the combination of depending on the language, which depends on the tolerance in the market, which depends on what their subject matter experts have given feedback on. So we go through a very rigorous process to test and vet the outcomes of and the intent, the intentions of the content. So from a business development perspective, like, you know, walk the client through a process and demonstrate that you have a methodology and then that will like remove the intimidation of, oh my goodness, this is going to cost $100,000 or a million dollars when no, like let's look at what a best fit scenario is for you and your learning. I, I think that's what the biggest trend in 2022 is. And, and it comes down yeah. to the uh, client maturity levels as well. There are some clients who have been doing uh, e-learning localization for years, whilst there are some other ones who are just forced into it because of the pandemic. Uh, where yeah. does uh, an organization like ULG stand in terms of providing that advice and research? I think because ULG in particular, we have a division, we have an operational division. The bread and butter of what they've always done is learning localization. So we can confidently go to any client or prospect and say, we've been there. We've been there through all the things. We've, we've used all the technologies that you might be considering. We have a lot of best practices and we failed forward with a lot of clients to figure out for them what the best case is. So the value add that ULG brings to the table is rooted experience in learning with subject matter experts like engineers and program managers who are willing to come to introductory calls and help set the stage for, okay, like, let's look at your files. Let's not just talk you know, generalities, like let's look at the specifics and then put a plan in place that's best for your particular content. Kristen, let's scope this a bit further. Who are the key players for e-learning? In other words, who buys e-learning localization from us? Yeah, who are the clients? Exactly, like which industries and, and which types of clients need this? Sure, good question. I, um, I think it runs the gamut, right? But it really does. So, but where where we're seeing a lot of it is in consumer goods, in retail, in manufacturing, in tech. Um, I don't personally focus in life sciences or med dev, but I know that it's very prevalent in that space too. So, in my world, I think those are some of the key sectors that need it. Um, anybody from, I mean, I mean, it really is like 
there there are two types of training, right? Training your internal teams or doing compliance and ethics training. That's huge ethics and compliance, especially with everything in diversity and inclusion right now. Um, there are companies who create ethics and compliance training specifically that then sell it to corporations who then train their employees. And then there's corporations who bring in experts to build and create their own ethics and compliance training to serve their audience, their, their employees. Uh, but there's also other training, like we mentioned, onboarding with HR, et cetera. So I think within any organization, well, I think generally speaking in the industry, it's, it's a lot of like big sector type companies. But then I think also in the companies, there's lots of different pockets. I'm working with one organization that's a manufacturing company that just has, well, like all manufacturing companies, they're very large and widespread, right? So we've identified to date at least three pockets, independent pockets that all sell learning or education services to their employees in some fashion. It's fascinating, right? One of the departments sells it, ex sells it, profits from it externally. Um, and so that's the thing. If you're selling your training and making a profit on it, you can build in the costs for localization to your profit, right? You can partner with a vendor to do the translation and then resell the course that you're selling, not only in English, but in X number of languages. Your end client, you're differentiating yourself from your competitors because maybe your competitors are still only selling English courses. And then your end clients are like, wow, this is great. I don't have to buy an English course and then go have it translated into French figs, right? I can just buy an English course plus the figs translated courses to serve my needs. My next question would be, uh, in terms of this, uh, these SMEs who develop these courses, are these internal organizations within the, uh, your client uh, space, or these could be external organizations that specialize in developing learning and e training courses? How do they actually understand the value of localization as to what their end clients actually need? That's a good question. Unfortunately, well, because <laughs> I think a lot of the answers are, it depends, but it really <laughs> does depend. We've seen internal, we've seen companies, um, build their own. We've also seen them use outside help. And that outside help can be a language services provider or who has expertise in content development, or it's literally just another company who does content development. So I think it depends what their understanding of localization or the value add of localization. It really depends if like anything, they're building it with the end in mind. For so long of my career, I focused on, and I still do software localization, right? And you see as you know, you, you so often come to a company who's like, we need to translate our product. And like, oops, we didn't internationalize the code because we didn't think 10 years ago when we created this legacy product that it would have to be translated. <laughs> so now they have to go through this giant effort to internationalize or, oh my goodness, recreate the product, right? Um, so it really depends if the learning was developed with the end in mind. If companies now are 2021 and they're starting to say, oh, I see what my competitors are doing or, oh, we need to get ahead of this or, oh, like the pandemic has changed the way we think. They're more likely to be recognizing that the end audience isn't all English speakers, no matter where they live around the world. They actually, the intelligence and the data speaks for itself globally that like if you speak to the um, the customer in their end language, they're more likely to retain the information. So if companies are developing courses today, likely they have the end 
recommended mine. And the value add of localization is built into that, right? But it's always a great idea to bring a partner, like a language services partner into the mix early on to say like, these, this is what we're looking at. This is our intended outcome. And our initiative for this really is two years from now. So how do we get to that, the outcome in two years from where we're starting today? This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human-in-the-loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. So on that note, uh, let's say there is an organization that has not done localization before and wants to bring in ULG. Uh, they want to bring in Kristen to come in and give us some advice. Where to start? Uh, where do we go from here? So what do you do for them? Do you just go and take uh, a snapshot of where things are, do some research as to who their clients are, learn about their internal processes, their products, and how do you interface with their localization teams, which they may have for building products and so forth? Great question. And you answered it already, <laughs> but yes, um, no, I think, um, I think, so if a company's never translated before and they say, Hey, Kristen, like, let's talk. It is, it is interesting for, to understand from their perspective, what are they trying to gain? What is their intention of the out? Like, what's the outcome that they're trying to achieve? Um, right. And then we'll work backwards from there in terms of what are their competitors doing? How do they differentiate? Is this a revenue generated income stream for them? Or is it simply something to respond to a need? Or are they proactively getting ahead? But at the end of the day, it's still going to be a, a cost item. Um, is the executive team and their, you know, management structure, are they bought into this? Is there budget? If they've never translated, have they, are they, do they understand what costs and how like a translation um, any translation program is cost and what are the various levels, you know, what is the education? So, so I would simply ask them where they are and we would start from there. One of the best things I love to do with any client is to walk them through an outcomes-based framework. Um, so in the case of e-learning or simple tech docs, right? Um, an outcomes-based framework sets you and the client up for a no-fail situation where you'd say, now that the education is done, we're ready to like, okay, but really how much does this cost, right? We would take a look at sample files or um, totality of like language expectations, et cetera. And not only would we run a budget or cost estimator for them, we would actually start to translate content and see kind of where the outcomes lie and who they can identify internally as subject matter experts, or if we need to add a secondary level of, you know, tra translation review on top of all of the proofreading and translating that we're already doing. Um, and just make sure that the outcome of the translation is what they expected so that we're not referring to the word table versus desk, sofa versus couch. We're simply learning how to speak their language. So that's the thing. This methodology can be applied to any subject matter that a trend that a company might say, hey, like we want to localize um, and then walking them through this process with a client who's never translated it before. It gives them a little bit more peace of mind. And we really like we work at their pace. And it stops being a pressured sales environment. It was like, hey, 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 remember me? Like, don't forget, like, we sent you a quote, like, what's happening? Because since I worked on the client side, what's likely happening is a series of conversations about everything under the sun that has to do with your quote and then doesn't because at the end of the day, like there's a big initiative that's funneling why they're asking for this quote, right? But when you have an outcomes-based framework, you have a series of set conversations 
pre-scheduled and you have designated checkpoints and they have actual deliverables and a better understanding of really like what is the intent of the translation. Um, so it's actually very powerful. So when we're talking about that engagement, uh, how is e-learning localization sales cycle different from other types of localization? I think it potentially could be a little bit longer um, only because there's a lot of moving parts and it depends if the course is um, ready to go or if a lot of times with our clients, they're still building courses up until the 11th hour. So we could do pseudo localization, which is also very common in software localization, where you're plug and playing like dummy text into the strings or into the content that they're reloading into their software that's building the e-learning course um, to make sure that, you know, if they're using an industry standard tool like Storyline and Articulate, it'll be great. But at least then they can see how the text might expand or contract based on the particular language that they're translating into. So the pseudo localization might be something that's helpful for them upfront. And then also the voiceover component of e-learning in particular just adds time, right? If you're looking at machine translation or voice AI, we also recommend an outcomes-based framework. It's a client just said to me today, I like the sound of robotic voices, but I cannot, and I actually agree with him. I cannot tell you how many times clients, they don't, they want the, they want to, if it's, if it's a, a machine, they still want it to sound like a human. They want the inflection of the tone. And then they have a particular, like, I don't like that female voice. I don't like that male voice. Right. So there happens to be a process that's added to e-learning because of if it's a voiceover e-learning that requires like a little bit more like um, listening for the client to listen to samples and for them to make selections based on what's going to best serve their audience. Uh, that's a very real thing. And that so that just takes time. That takes time in addition to like the vo voiceover aspect of it, while it can work in parallel with the translations. Um, you know, everything just adds time. So let's dig a little bit deeper on that. Uh, well, my next question was around uh, who are the, the clients in terms of top five markets uh, geography wise? If you drill down, are there differences in terms of e-learning uh, in, in the US versus Europe, for example, or, or China, how they implement e-learning and localize them? You know, the thing I think that's interesting is um, I think it <laughs> you're going to love this answer, but I think it depends. But what I've seen is certain companies have internal learning programs and groups and entire teams that their their entire livelihood their job depends on creating the courses and then they partner with their translation vendors and then it's like a very well orchestrated machine and their training is like this like you and me talking and interacting right now, it's very real. It's a very real like feeling versus the other end of the spectrum. I have clients who have absolutely outsourced their, like we call it stick figures, right? They have stick figure based training because ultimately the argument was made at the executive level, do they need fully robust built out programs that's costing a lot of money or can the end audience actually, are they still satisfied? Are they just as satisfied with a stick figure? So any company has a choice to use talking heads, like avatars and animation as it relates to everything, but especially learning has really evolved. So if you're typically creating training where there's a human talking to a computer, talking to herself on a computer and, you know, walking through, and then the localization of it is translating the on-screen text plus my voice, right? And matching the lips and everything like that. Or can I be a talking head? Because if I'm a talking head and maybe I'm still me, but a talking head, <laughs> 
Like you have so much more flexibility with um, being able to match the talking head in language because you can play with the com computer animation of it, right? Um, so I, I really think it depends on what the outcome is. But that's the great thing. We've seen it all and we have expertise with all. So we can really help a client identify like what might be their best fit and then kind of test some things out in that framework. Kristen, let's talk about trends. You mentioned about how things are now and we got an education and e-learning now. Do you think uh, the demand for education is on the rise? Will it result in higher demand for virtual education? I think so. Yes. Yes, I think I think everybody wants to continue to learn. And I think it's been established that training people, you know what I think is happening is smaller segments. So it's not just like a huge one hour training that you have to sit through. It's like bite-sized micro learnings. Um, so it's five minute videos because our, our attention, the problem is we want to keep learning, but our attention span is like null. Shrinking. <laughs> so, how, yeah. so how can you take a podcast? That's why we created the Ask the Expert series and created just like three minute videos from it we too record a longer video and then the team is actually going to create women in localization the media channel is going to create a podcast based on the audio because the other thing with micro um, with learning in general is are you sitting in front of a computer do i have to be captured and captive behind my computer to learn and digest or can some of the stuff be delivered on podcast form and can i go on a walk or do some other things where i'm still engaged and learning but like at the same time like not just sitting around so i think the biggest trend is creating instead of like 45 minute trainings it's creating these bite-sized micro learnings so the pandemic and the emerging variants continue to play a role in remote education and remote work. What are your thoughts about demand for e-learning localization given these factors? My thoughts on uh, e-learning, the demand for e-learning localization is that it will only increase. I think if you're a vendor who has expertise in this or can kind of rally the team internally to figure out what the pieces are, you will absolutely succeed in terms of, because it, it's not taking anything away. You're, you're really adding value. As a vendor, you're adding value to a client by being able to help them deliver their trainings in other languages. So I think the pandemic has, and the stats and the data are out there that the need for localized e-learning is only going to significantly increase over time. The world is opening up uh, with new countries joining the global internet village on a daily basis. How do you see that affecting the demand for e-learning and as a result localization? I think um, that more people are coming online globally, that the the demand will only continue to increase. And one thing that we didn't talk about was subtitling, right? So there are other ways to look at cost. Pro, you know, if cost is prohibitive, there are, in addition to machine and for text and for voice, there's ways you can just subtitle the text, right? That requires a learner to actually be engaged and reading. Um, but you know, how do you translate, go from translating into five languages to a hundred without right. <laughs> spending X hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars? So you really have to start looking at creative ways. And that's why I think there's a, there's a real need and a time and a place for that stick figure based training, because it's like, uh, how am I going to digest and absorb the training as like a user of it? And then what's my attention span? And then are you speaking to me in my language? These are all factors in like being able to communicate to the world at large. And 
working with a partner like United Language Group who really says, okay, right, if you need 100 languages, we're probably going to want to look at this. If you need three languages and you're selling this to customers, we're probably going to want to look at that. So on the same token, we have new and emerging technologies that may present opportunities for virtual education that we may not have imagined before. A case in point, the metaverse and blockchain. How do you see e-learning localization evolve in that sense next year? Ooh, good question. (laughs) Yeah, I, th- I think it's I, I think it's through um, technology. I really think the evolution of e-learning is through technology. And there are different channels now popping up, right? We've got, uh, before there was just video and now you've got all these other gamification and so forth. Uh, how where should our industry be focusing their efforts in terms of learning where to go for e-learning and localization? I think the best thing any LSP can ever do is just ask the question and talk to their prospects or customers. Um, I often find people are really willing, if they really don't feel there's a threat that you're trying to sell them, if you really just want to learn, then the best thing to do is is identify um, through LinkedIn or whatever platform, you know, people that look or are posting about, you know, doing certain areas of learning and go out and just have a conversation with them. Ask them what is their approach to learning and how are they tackling these trends? Because you're right, gamification is absolutely something like micro learning that is a trend um, for 2022 and beyond, right? Because am I as a user of learning more engaged if I'm playing a game or kind of interacting with the training along the way? The answer is yes. What are the the trends that you see happening next year in terms of the changes uh, that we've met, witness, witnessed in the past year or so? I think I think at the end of the day, it's like there isn't a one size fits all to training or to the localization approach to training. So I previously mentioned that um, let's look at the totality of what the learning program that you have is, and then per the language, put a best fit for it. Is it hu- 100% human or is it? human plus machine, right? But I think as companies are developing learning, there isn't a one size fits all. I One of the clients I just spoke to said, we have, what, what did they say? We have, oh, in blended learning, we're doing a blended learning model. So it's a little bit of textbook based PowerPoint, maybe it's a little bit of video. And then it's a little bit of like conferencing, like workshop kind of a thing, right? So we'll have a platform where people will log in and they'll engage with each other. So I think that's where the trends are going is that companies creating learning aren't, it's not, it doesn't all look the same anymore. It's not in a box, right? There's there's gamification, there's micro learning, but then there's all like the blended learning. It's like, what is my audience? How is my audience best going to learn? Let's do that. So for those organizations that are on the edge, whether to offer e-learning beyond their English or common language markets, what do you tell them? What is the business case for them to ask their executives to sponsor more markets in 2022? So I'd say if you talk to a man in his language, he understands. That goes to a head. If you talk to a man in his if <laughs> if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. So Nelson Mandela said that. And I think that justifies the need for training in language. Truly, it, I happen to speak English as my first language, but if I didn't, or if you were requiring me to learn something in Spanish, for example, I would I would understand or comprehend what I needed to know in order to pass the course or, you know, tell my manager, yeah, I did the thing and I checked the box. 
But truly, if you're doing scenarios that relate to me, or if you're speaking to me in the language that I prefer to speak, then I'm really going to understand it. And I'm going to go off and probably tell my spouse or my colleague something that cool that I learned from this training. How many times have you done that, right? Like um, regurgitated something. And that's often because it resonated with you. And the easiest way to resonate with somebody is to speak to them in their own language. As you described, e-learning localization is not a cut and paste cookie cutter translation project. What should e-learning and education organizations know about partnering with the right localization provider for this medium of delivery? Absolutely. Great question. Really that your, your partner you really need a partner who isn't going to just slap some translations together and send them back, right? One of my clients said, the thing that makes ULG so special is it really feels like an intimate team working on the projects every single time. So being any LSP, small or large, like the idea that consistency of translations, like that's assumed, right? We're in business, we retain our clients, we know how to translate things consistently for you. But to give a client the feel that you don't, you you know who your main point of contact is if you're talking sales or, you know, something related to your actual project. I mean, you've got these key points of contact, but you really feel that, that there's a team behind the scenes, like supporting your needs. I mean, I think that goes with any content type, right? Um, how do you make your clients feel? feel and how reactive are you to solving their problems and how proactive are you to trying to address needs that they might know they have? Well, uh, what are some of the byproducts of e-learning localization that presents opportunities for our industry, the localization industry? For example, I can think of multimedia localization. You mentioned subtitling earlier, summarization is another one, and some upstream activities. What are your thoughts and advice? At the end of the day, like a byproduct of your learning localization could be the same as the byproduct of other things that you're translating, right? So you'll have a collective translation memory, you'll have glossaries, you'll have, um, if you're using machine, to translate, you'll have you'll be adding to your machine library to make it smarter and more consistent over time. Um, so you're really building up assets. I, I really think machine translation is a huge trend. It's a it's an evolution of a trend for our our industry as a whole, but especially for content types that historically would have never looked at using machine. Right? We talked about that at the beginning, where historically tech docs, very plain Jane written content could be applied using a machine. Now, this whole entire conversation could literally be transcribed with the click of a button, right? Right. So the machine aspect of you doing training, the idea that, again, depending on your end, end audience, but that it's good enough and that you can train your engine. So ULG uses a curated machine. Um, we're curating a machine based on your particular content that we've translated over the course of time or based on dictionaries and glossaries that we've built or have access to, right? But more importantly, we're making your engine smarter and smarter and smarter for you and your content type. And we're retraining the engine. And then we're doing a level of translation and edit on top of the machine or a standard practice for our industry would be a post edit on the machine. Or you obviously can just leave the machine as is. But as it relates to learning a translate edit on top of a, a curated machine or a post edit on top of a curated machine actually gets very favorable results based on the outcome-based framework or methodologies I've done with my clients. It's not a one-size-fits-all, nothing is, right? But I think the biggest byproduct of learning would be, you know, applying a machine translation to it and then letting that 
engine becomes smarter over time. And now you're able to tackle this huge mountain of learning that you have, all these PowerPoint decks and the various um, courses that you've created because you're able to apply a machine and intelligently translate it after the fact and then feed all of that back into the machine. So it's a constant cycle. As we reach the end of this interview, Kristen, please share some words of advice, some words of wisdom with our colleagues in the industry. What what would you like to tell them? That e-learning localization is exciting. It's not something to be intimidated by. There are a lot of moving parts and there are items for consideration do you want human voiceover or machine voiceover? Do you want human translation or machine translation? I really think that if you're selling localization or if you're buying localization, the best approach would be to look at an outcomes-based framework and let the outcomes of the data, the you know, do some test translations, run it through a process, let the outcomes speak for itself. You rely, identify some internal um, employees or resources who speak those other languages or have your vendor partner, you know, put an extra layer of review on top of all of it. And then look at, look at what the outcomes are, test a machine and really approach e-learning localization from a perspective of knowledge rather than like, ah, I'm just throwing all of this over the wall and I need it translated yesterday, help. <laughs> well, that was a very interesting and fascinating dive into the world of e-learning localization and predictions for this sector in the next year. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you, Kristen, on this, and, and I'm hoping we can cover more topics of this caliber in the coming year. As I always say, if we were able to help even one individual or company in our industry through this channel, we have hit our goal. Um, I personally learned a lot and cannot wait to speak with you on this topic in the future. With that, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Localization is a support industry for so many other industries. While traditionally localization has been a function of language and predominantly translation dependent, new and innovative solutions in other industries has propelled localization to power more than translation of text. E-learning is a great example, a success story if you will, and since we are talking about trends for next year, localization will be in higher demand to provide remote education. As you heard, the pandemic and frequent variant scares continue to push people back into their home-based work environments. Human resources corporate policies, sales, marketing, technical, and many other types of training programs will be delivered virtually. Given the ease that allows central organizations to reach out to their periphery will make localization even more compelling to train staff in foreign jurisdictions. I believe 2022 will be a great year for e-learning localization. Thank you for listening. This was a fun and quite frankly, a very interesting interview for me. I'm sure we all learned something and armed with the right information, we can start a fresh year. I want to thank you for listening to the Translation Company Talk throughout this year and for your support and advice to make it better. I promise you that 2022 is going to be as interesting and probably more fun. Our industry is a good place to be in. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. Give us a thumbs up or a five-star rating, whatever you're listening. Keep sending those comments and constructive feedback to make this podcast better and suggest topics or guests that you may want to cover on this podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.